All right. So last week, we ended in verse 13 of uh, chapter 2, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, there, so we'll pick up there again tonight and flow into the next verses um, to uh, keep in step with the context of what Paul is writing and why he's writing it. As I kept reading these passages of Scripture, it reminds me of those times when someone's feeling down um, about themselves, their own worth, and maybe another person comes along and they're trying to help and they begin to give them a sort of a, a pep talk, right? They, they start by disagreeing with uh, the one who's down on themselves and telling them um, that what they're thinking about themselves isn't true. And then they go about convincing them of the opposite, right? Uh, a better way to think about themselves by going over a list of all of their good qualities or great accomplishments um, to build them up, right? The goal is to build them up. And of course, this is all focused on that person and their own abilities with the goal of making them feel better about themselves, making them see that they can do anything they want to do. Right? We like to say that in our culture. Uh, making them focus on their strengths and not on their weaknesses, hoping they will come around to see the truth that they should not be down about themselves, that they should be encouraged and confident, not believing their own lies about themselves. Not that this is always a bad thing, but it can be problematic for a few reasons. For one thing, there are probably some difficult things that person needs to hear about themselves, um, like all of us do, uh, to make some positive changes. And this method leaves those things unsaid. A person can go to another extreme and begin to believe they have no flaws, right? Um, also, this can be problematic for this whole pattern of doing things. It can be problematic for Christians because we don't want to focus on self. We want to focus on Christ. But in a way, this is what Paul's been, um, as we've gone through, it's what he's been doing in this passage. Not giving the church a pep talk about themselves in relation to their own accomplishments and abilities, but on something greater. Right? The, the people had been hearing and believing, or at least being confused by, lies regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this pep talk is given so they can ignore those lies right? and come back to the truth to be confident and grounded not in their own strength and abilities, but in their relationship with Christ, who is the one in whom all their strength and hope and salvation is made possible. Right, so, and not just made possible, right? Paul, Paul's pointing out that it is an assured reality for all those who are in Christ. Considering their biggest problem, sin, he gives them this pep talk in verse 13, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, they've come to this place not by the plausible arguments of those bringing error into the church, as he wrote in verse 4, not by being taken, taken captive by philosophy and, uh, and the empty deceit of unbelieving liars according to what sinful human beings think is true, like he wrote about in verse 8, but they have come to this by by the fact that they are in Christ, the one in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. 
like Paul wrote about in, in chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 2, verse 9. And he's making a clear distinction between ungodly humanistic thinking and the truth. All right, he's telling them to dump all that worldly garbage and wrong thinking for the truth that you have already believed. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, is everything that has made you a child of God. He has made you alive. He died for you and has made you alive together with Himself because you were once dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive and has forgiven all your trespasses. So this is part of His pep talk. This is working against the lies of those false teachers and people that are bringing... um, other things and trying to attach other things to their salvation and bringing into question their salvation. And so he's drawing their attention back to Christ and Christ alone as accomplishing everything that needed to be accomplished. So let's look at at verses 13 through 17, and then we'll pray for tonight. Um, Colossians 2, 13 through 17. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night, for uh, the opportunity to come together, to um, gather around your word, to sing praises to you. Um, We lift up this time to you, Lord, asking that you would teach us through your word. Pray that we'd have right understanding of the scriptures, uh, so that we may live proper lives as Christians, that we may have um, reinforced understanding of the accomplishments of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, may we never attach anything else to that. May we realize, recognize, and believe that the work of Christ is absolutely sufficient to bring us into right relationship with you. Because Lord, it is not on our accomplishments that that happens but by the righteousness of the one who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. We're so grateful for that. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Paul is building them up here, okay, in in the truth about Christ's ability and not their own. Remember, it makes sense when you think about it in terms of the lies that would be coming at them, telling them, um, well, for one thing, as we'll see moving forward, you know, they would bring other things in and say, you have to do these things um, to be saved, in addition to believing in Christ, um, which can cause confusion and all kinds of problems. So he's wanting to build them up here, again, like, like in this pep talk, not about their abilities or things they could do, but about Christ's ability. Um, Christ's accomplishments and not their own. It's all due to Christ. And not only that, but nothing else is needed. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is possible. Um, So like we looked at last week, Paul said in Romans 6.11, so you must must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
this is your mindset. This is how you should think about things. Um, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, again, the key phrase there is in Christ. Because as David says in, in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgressions, uh, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a, that's a great passage of Scripture. Uh, we, we should remember ourselves that way as Christians that um, our transgressions are forgiven. We are blessed by that. Our mindset should be thinking clearly about that. Um, at this point, the people that Paul is writing to, really, they should be looking around at each other and saying, yeah, that's right. What were we thinking believing that other stuff? Right? What happened? Why, why do we start believing those other things? He's reminding them of what they already knew, but they've been troubled. It's like they needed to shake the scales from their eyes right? and, and be able to see clearly again. And that's what Paul's doing with these verses. He wants them to see clearly again. As we look in verse 14, we see Paul's answer to the how of the forgiveness of sins that he had mentioned. How did he, Jesus, forgive our trespasses? Paul says in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, each of the Ten Commandments has, as it were, united with the rest to draw up an indictment against us. The first commandment says, um, he has broken me. The second cries, he has broken me. The third, he has broken me. And the whole ten together have laid the same charge against each one of us. That is the handwriting of the law condemning every man of woman born while he remains in a state of nature. It just piles up, piles up. Everyone is guilty. The idea here is that we are all debtors to God in our sin. There's a record of it. It is written down. It is official. More than that, the word Paul used here regarding the record of of debt means a handwriting. Okay, And he's talking about a debt that we cannot dispute. This This is our own handwriting. We've signed and acknowledged an acknowledgement of, of our debt owed to God. This is the language of legal documents, right? acknowledging that a debt must be paid. There is no other way but that what is owed must be paid. What else did he say about this record of debt? But that it is, that it, it stood against us, right? And it had legal demands. Stands against us or is contrary to us or condemns us. Some translations will use different terminology there. There's no escape. No escape from this. There's no escape from the payment. He referred to it as being legally demanding. It's a reference to God's law, the laws of God that everyone has violated and broken, both Jew and Gentile alike. And really, what what are the legal demands for this debt that Paul's referring to? We're talking about this debt, this debt that we all owe. He talked about it as having legal demands, right? It demands something. What are the legal demands for this debt that Paul is writing about? Death, right? One word, death. 
Romans 1, 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see that the record of our debt is hostile toward us. It's, it's coming for us. Right? It stands against us. It condemns us because we have violated God's laws and that violation of God's perfectly righteous law legally and rightly demands that the sinner must die because payment is required. And that is, that is the payment. But Paul says here that God did something. Right? He says that God has canceled that record of debt. What, is, what does he mean it was canceled? What do you think? Erased. Erased. When we look at the Greek word um, that I won't try to pronounce, we see uh, the power of its meaning, right? The, the Greek word that Paul used has a powerful meaning. Um, and we remember what we talked about just a minute ago, that, that this is a handwritten record. This is a record, right? Well, this word means that it was wiped off, right? wiped away, erased, obliterated. It is, it is what must take place in every sinner's life. This is a, it's a strong word, right? When you think about something that's written on paper, and to have that wiped off of there. It's a blank sheet. It's gone. Wiped away. And Peter used that same word when he addressed the people in Solomon's portico after he had healed the, the lame beggar. And he went in, and the people were all amazed at what happened. Um, and Peter called on them to repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's the same word he used there, and that's in Acts, Acts 3.19. Why do we need to understand the, the strength of the language Paul used? Why do you and I need to understand, understand this? What do you think? There's no real right or wrong answer here. but <laughs> What do you guys think? Why, why is it helpful to know? Okay, to remind us that we're trusting in the one Savior? Okay. What else? Okay, it's foundational to the other things we'll have to deal with. Okay. Right. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay, yeah, but I know who might have believed in. Yeah, very true. Yeah, you know, it's important for those reasons and others, right? Because we sometimes, if you think about this, why do we need to understand the strength of this language Paul is using, that he's talking about this 
this sin being wiped away, blotted out. Because sometimes, don't we, we, we think there might still be uh, a remnant of sin not paid for. Right? We can, we can convince ourselves of that, or, or others can say things that might make us question, is it all really paid for? Right? So we need to, that's why the strong language is important here, that we understand that it is gone, it is wiped away. And that's what he wants them to know. So we see, we need to see, and he needs them to see, and, and us to see, and be reminded of the power of the cross of Christ. To do, to do this, to take it away, to wipe it away. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's, he's taking them right back to the sufficient work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's been under attack in the church here. The whole first chapter and, and into the second chapter, we talked about Christ, his work, the sufficiency of his work, who he is, that he is God himself, um, the Son, and uh, that what he has done has accomplished the work that um, it was intended to accomplish is sufficient. Look at the last part of verse 14 again. It says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we see here that he, he wiped it away. Um, the way that he wiped it away was by the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, and this phrase is absolutely pointing the people to look at the cross of Christ on purpose. He wants them not to look at other things in terms of what got rid of their sin, what dealt with their sin, but look right at the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, they again, they already knew this. Um, he's writing to believers, um, but they've been troubled. Okay? They need to be reminded. And in the, in the metaphorical sense, the record of debt accusing anyone who has come to faith in Christ, was nailed to the cross when Jesus himself was nailed to the cross. Not only did this event in redemptive history do away with the believer's sin, but the next verse also tells us what else it accomplished. Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As we know, Satan is our enemy. He is God's enemy. Um, and he and his demons are always at work seeking people to devour, to keep people blinded to the truth, to try and interfere with or to thwart God's plans of redemption. He would try and keep Christ from going to the cross. How did he do that? Remember what Satan did? Tempted him, right? What did he offer Jesus? <laughs> Very simply, what he already had. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what were those things? The world. Power, right? Yeah. He, he offered Jesus all the things that man would look to and be very tempted by. Like we would, that's what, pulls a lot of people down, right? Those things that appeal to our flesh. But as we know, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. So yeah, he would, he would try to stop him from going to the cross. And that's not the only way. It's not the only time either. He would try to stop Christ by using religious leaders, by, um, um, by using even his own disciples against him. 
You know, Judas betrayed Jesus. But that was in God's plan all along. Peter tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross and from doing the work of the Father. Um, and Jesus identified him as being like Satan. Look, let's look at that at, eight, at Mark chapter 8. See how serious Jesus is about completing the work of the Father, doing the work of salvation. Mark 8, 31 through 33. Jesus' teaching here says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What nerve, right? Rebuking Jesus? Pulling Jesus aside? Uh, that's a scary thing. But that's what he was doing. He, he wasn't understanding. Jesus just finished plainly telling them what must happen. And then Peter's going to try to stop him. And Jesus identifies that. That's the work of the devil. That's not my work. That's the work of the devil. Well, the rulers and authorities, in our, in, back in our text here, he says that he put them to open shame. Rulers and authorities Paul is referring to here are Satan and his demonic forces. Okay, through the, the work of Christ, Satan has been disarmed or literally stripped. Right? He has no power over anyone who is in Christ, and he cannot ever change that, no matter what he does. He cannot change that. What makes us sometimes disbelieve that? Why do we disbelieve that Satan has been stripped of his power when it comes to Christians? Because <laughs> he's running rampant? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Other reasons you can think of? Why do we, why do we doubt that Satan has been stripped of his power when it comes to Christians? Okay, he right. What what is the reality for Christians in terms of Ephesians six, right? Spiritual warfare. Yes, we we wage war against our our sinfulness. Still, um, we still have you know the harassment of Satan and his demons. But Christians cannot be indwelled by demons. Satan is allowed to go about doing what he does. He can, he can hinder our fellowship with other Christians. He can um, cause animosity between us and people. He can cause us to believe wrong things for, for a time. Um, but is any of that the same as taking away our salvation? No. He cannot. He cannot change what Christ has done for us. He cannot put us back into a place of condemnation for our sin. 
It's been, it's been done away with. He's been stripped of his power when it comes to that. Yeah, thankfully. This is like defeating, the, the, and defeating and capturing your enemy in battle, right? You take that enemy, you take him back to the city, you drag him through your cities to show all your people, look at this enemy's been destroyed, defeated. He, has, he no longer has any power. He's been taken down in battle. Um, and that not only was this enemy not victorious over us, but he will never be victorious because the victor is Christ. Never be victorious over Christians. And ultimately, humanity lives in fear of death, right? It's just, it's a reality. Human beings fear death. The fear of death is a, is a form of slavery that people all fear uh, in their lives, even though they deny it, right? There's this, this fear of death. Well, the Bible tells us that, that, that this is, it is a reality, and it is uh, Satan who has the power of death over people to keep them in bondage to that fear, but Jesus destroys that. Hebrews, if you look with me in Hebrews 2.14 and 15, we see that very clearly here, and I, I think it's a good passage for us to look at and be reminded of uh, when, we, when we think about these things, that these thoughts that may come in periodically, we need to be reminded of what Christ has done. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has delivered. If you're a Christian, he has delivered you from the power of Satan, delivered you from the fear of death, which is a slavery of our minds in fear. And he's delivered us from that. Satan has been stripped of his power. Paul says he's been put to open shame, and it continues to happen. Every time a sinner is saved by God, having their record of sin uh, canceled, nailed to the cross of Christ, it's open shame. Look over with me at Ephesians chapter 3. Just to the left in your Bible. Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. Paul writing about the gospel here and the fact that he's been made a minister of the gospel. Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we see there, Paul's talking about um, the power of God to reveal these things to Satan. Right? The power of God to make it known to them. It's, 
um, this is, again, this is Paul's pep talk so the Christians will stop putting any value in anything else. Right? Whatever people are saying to them, whatever confusion people might be bringing to them, set that aside, put it aside, remember what Christ has done. Point is, sin and salvation have already been taken care of for the Christian, and it was thoroughly and soundly accomplished through the blood of Christ. We need to remember that as Christians. We need to dwell on that as Christians. It has nothing to do with people's philosophy, which he's dealt with in this. It has nothing to do with self-righteousness. It has nothing to do with your own obedience to keeping a bunch of ceremonial laws either. Therefore, Paul says in verses 16 and 17, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's it's amazing. These words are amazing. Paul's saying, what he's saying here is that Since Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation, don't let anyone take away your freedom in Him. Don't let anyone put you back in bondage. Don't let anyone make a judgment against you that you are not saved if you don't observe certain ceremonial laws. Don't attach that to yourselves again. It seems here that there were some who were following a, a legalistic path to salvation. And using the Jewish ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant to do so. Um, like we saw last week, we, we looked at the, Gentile, or the Galatians. Um, the false teachers there were saying Christ is good, but not sufficient. You must also keep laws, specifically circumcision. And Paul points out the areas of concern here by mentioning what he knew was being held against them. You know, he talks about Laws regarding food and drink, okay, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. And as he told the Galatians in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't, don't do that. That's what anyone coming to you with these things is trying to do. Put you in bondage, put you in slavery to law-keeping for your salvation. Christ is sufficient. What he has done is sufficient. Those things, all the law-keeping for salvation, have no value. No value at all. They're useless for salvation. Well, what are some of Paul's desires for the church here in making this statement in verse 16? What do you think are, are some of Paul's desires for them by what you read there? Okay, yeah. Yeah, to point them away from the keeping of the festivals and all those things. What else? Okay. Right, for the sake of unity, right? If God's people are, some, some believers over here are saying, no, it's all Christ, and others over here are saying, no, it's these things. That's division, right? That is not... That other side is not, they are not sharing the true gospel. Uh, so there is a division there. 
And so, sure, he wants to have Christians be aligned on the truth, right? Be focused on Christ. Any other thoughts on that? What, what are, would Paul's desires be for the church in this? Right. Christ is so much better than all those things listed. And much more, right? Name, name any of the things that people try to say um, are the way to salvation. And they're not. They're just not. Every time. If someone ever tells you there's some other thing, some other way, we know as Christians that is not true. Jesus said he is the way. Right? Okay, well, now we have to be careful about that one, right? There is a sense in which Paul doesn't want to doesn't want us to judge each other. Um, in this sense, he's talking about don't let anyone judge you in terms of your salvation based on um, whether or not you keep these laws, right? Don't, the goal there being he doesn't want you to be troubled by it, right? Now, we're, the scriptures are full of locations for Christians where it tells us to judge one another. So we, there's not a blanket, don't judge. A lot of people take that verse, you know, a particular verse that says, you know, judge not, lest you be judged, um, but it's out of context. You know, the, the fuller context of that is there, there is a type of judgment that is, uh, that is prohibited, and there's a type of judgment that is expected. Right? The prohibited judgment would be a hypocritical judgment. Right? If I have a log in my eye, and I'm going after you for the speck in your eye, um, then that's a hypocritical judgment. But we're told to make judgments. Um, okay, this would be one of them, right? If, if I'm... Um, sitting with somebody, and we both profess to be believers, and they're saying that um, they're saved because they kept these laws, they believed in Christ and kept these laws, and they're trying to tell me to do the same. Well, I need to make a righteous judgment there and say, that is absolutely not true. The Word of God says the opposite of that. And now, we're not talking about yelling at them, getting in a big fight or anything, right? But, but making the judgment that that is, that is a false gospel, that is wrong, that would be a, an example of a righteous judgment, right? Um, anytime there's sin, we're told to point out sin in one another's lives. We should approach a brother or sister to confront them over sin. We're making a judgment there, right? That behavior you're doing is sin. I'm, I'm making a judgment. Now, there's a difference between making a judgment and, and making a condemnation, right? Um, but we, we judge sinfulness. We judge wrong thinking, wrong behaviors, um, but we can't do it hypocritically. We have to deal with our own stuff first um, before we can point that out in someone else's life. And even when you go to that very passage in Matthew, talking about taking the log out of your own eye, people just stop short. They stop at the judge not lest you be judged. If they continue on, they, see, they can see that it's about hypocritical judgment. And in fact, at the end, it says, once you've taken the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. The implication is, you're still going to make that judgment, right? But it's a righteous judgment. It's not hypocritical when you've gotten rid of that log in your own eye. So, yeah, we, you know, all these things are Paul's desire. He wants, he doesn't want the Christians there to be troubled when someone comes and says, you have to do all these things plus Christ to be saved. He doesn't want them to be troubled. So he, he makes this statement in um, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of these things, food, and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let them do that. Be, 
be anchored in Christ. Be assured in Christ. Um, Don't let someone call into question your salvation on the basis of these laws. The Word of God is clear regarding the sufficiency of Christ on the cross. It just is. Let's look over in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. In verse 15 says, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is Jesus talking. Okay, now look with me at verses 17 through 19. Jesus explains this. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Well, that's pretty clear, right? All foods are are clean. Um, Now, that wasn't always the case. Um with the, all the food laws and everything that the, the Jews had to follow under the Old Covenant, right? But where else do we see in the New Testament where God does away with the dietary laws of the Old Covenant? Where else do we see Him doing away with that? We're on this subject of food and drink, right? Peter and, and Cornelius, right? Peter has the vision um, where God makes it clear that uh, the things that were unclean are now clean. He's declaring them clean, um, and that's the very beginning of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And that was in itself a picture of more than just food, right? That was a picture of people. What people had been thought of as outside of, of God's plan of salvation, God is including in His plan of salvation. Where else do we see anything about food laws being done away with? Can you think of any? Um, Paul writes in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? It's not a matter of that. Why were these, the, the question can come up though, why were these laws given by God to the Israelites in the first place? Why all these food restrictions? Health? Okay, what else? Other thoughts on that? That's a very true statement. They were, they were messing up. <laughs> right, they, did, they didn't have the FDA to tell them that pork had to be cooked this, this long. And Right. I, you know, I, well, is there somebody else going to say something else? All right. Well, there's something really, really key to what God was doing with the Israelites, okay? And it's done to separate God's people from everyone else, to, to separate them from the pagan world, uh, all their idolatry 
and all the things that they did with, without any restriction in their lives, God's people were to be different. You know, he, God made his people way different, right? They, they stood out. Uh, after, in Leviticus 11, there's a whole list of all the food, all the things you can't, can and can't eat, right? And it's, it's very detailed. Um, and after that whole list of clean and unclean foods in Leviticus 11, God says this in verse 45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He's saying this is, this is what makes my people holy, is this. So, so they had to follow those things. Um, but in the, under the new covenant, those things are done away with. And Paul's writing about that here in our Colossians passage, that, that those things are, are done away with. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Because there is no restriction on that. So is there, is there a time when it's, when someone might think it's uh, bad to eat this or that thing and that we should not uh, hinder them in that. Okay. Yeah, so if a new believer, if they're um, in their immaturity, they think it's wrong to eat this certain thing, it's different than them going and saying, you must obey this to be saved, right? But in their conscience, they think, you know what, I, I can't eat this. Well, you're to be patient with them. You're not to, to hinder their, their relationship with God by, you know, getting upset with them or something like that. Now, we can, we can teach, right? We can help show where the Bible, like the passages we talked about tonight, where the Bible makes it clear that's not a, a restriction. That's not something you have to be concerned about. But we shouldn't counsel somebody to go against their conscience either. If in their conscience they feel like they shouldn't eat that, that's okay. That doesn't change their salvation. But if someone takes it to the place of, if you're eating that thing, you can't be saved, and then we have a problem. Right, we've changed the gospel. We can't do that. So he's, he's not wanting them to allow anyone to pass judgment on them in, in a question of food and drink. And we're, we're out of time, but um, we'll continue next time. But the next things he has on that list are new moon, are festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. So we still have other things to look at here that he's saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in these, in these areas. And these would be really serious, right, to somebody who's Maybe a Jew who's converted to Christianity, this could be a really difficult thing that they would want, they would need some teaching here. They would need some help with this. This could be a real burden on them. Um, but he's making it clear here. And there are other passages of Scripture where we'll see that it's clear those things are done away with. In fact, he says so, that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the reality that all this old stuff is always pointed to Christ Christ has come, and that's who we need to focus on for our salvation. So let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, thank you um, for this night. Thank you for our time in your word, uh, time to fellowship together. I praise you for it, Lord. We thank you for being the God of our lives, Lord, that you are, you are all-powerful, all-knowing. You are the victor. We don't have to fear that there is some sin undealt with by Christ. We may have sin that we haven't confessed, and we need to do so. But if we are in Christ, it's been paid for, past, present, and future. And we don't have to fear condemnation any longer, because Christ is the victor. 
We're so grateful, Lord, for this plan of salvation that you have put in place through your Son and, and Lord, drawn us to yourself that we may participate in that. We're so grateful. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.